I wanted to throw baseballs faster. Like I just really cared about playing. And as somebody who had good talent, but not world-class talent, how do you become a world-class performer with, with those tools? The only thing that you can do is the, the things that you can control, your preparation, your training, the stuff that you can be intentional on. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Bullpen Sessions. I'm excited today. Anytime I get a chance to talk to a former pro baseball player, especially one who spent time on the mound, I am loving it. And today's uh, episode guest is definitely fits that with Bill. I got Bob Wheatley joining me, who I just recently met. Uh, we are part of uh, the Brand Builders Group, which is an amazing organization that's helping us grow our brand at Complete Game Consulting. Today... Bob is the sales director at uh, Brand Builders Group, but Bob is also a former college baseball player at the University of Southern California, former Major League Baseball player found, uh, in the Blue Jays and Cardinals organization. And um, he is also an author, podcaster, as well as serving as co-host of the single, that single show, a singles ministry with KCBI Christian Radio in Dallas. He currently lives in Nashville, Tennessee, where the Brand Builders Group is headquartered. So, Bob, welcome aboard. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a while since I've been in the bullpen, but it's good to be back. <laughs> you know, I actually, the reason I called I call the podcast Bullpen Session, this is going to make a lot of sense for you. Back in the day, right, every week you had that bullpen session. It was your time mm -hmm. to, to, get, to get coached from your pitching coach to work on your craft, so I view these uh, set these episodes as that opportunity for people to work on their mindset, their skills. So um, thank you for being part of this. Again, it's it's even better when I get to have a pitcher on. By the way, I'm going to start this episode by telling you this. You're a southpaw and you're 6'5". Um, I am extremely jealous being 5'9", <laughs> right-handed. So, so well, if, I, if, if I could just throw baseballs fast, then I might have been pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, Being but six, left, lefties left always has a lefties always had the nasty hook, man. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. I hear you. But let's start, let's start right there. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? And, and we'll we're gonna let's talk about early Bob Wheatley leading up to your time playing and pitching at USC. Yeah. So like you said, I live here in Nashville, Tennessee. Been here for about five years. I grew up in Southern California. So grew up in Orange County, was a football, baseball player, ended up accepting that scholarship to play baseball at USC. The reason why I chose USC, my parents had met there. So I grew up a, a Trojan fan my whole life. And it was right during the, the heyday of, you know, Pete Carroll, Matt Miner, Reggie Bush, like our, our football teams were amazing. We had season seats. So I, I was a Trojan through and through. And when they they offered to have me come to school, it was it was an easy yes. So grew up in Orange County, went to school in L.A., and then I was drafted by the Toronto Blue Jays. <laughs> so yeah. the the one uh, the one professional team not in America, but yeah, it was uh, it was all good. Let's talk about that. A um, couple of questions I have, you know, being six five and left handed, and you play quarterback in, in high school. Um, number one, just out of curiosity, did you ever, did you have any opportunities to play college, uh, quarterback at the college level? I did. It would have been your smaller D ones. Like the, the school that most heavily recruited me was Duke, which obviously is an amazing school, but I wanted to, first of all, stay somewhat close to home. 
And I wanted to play in the pack. It was the pack 10 my freshman year, became the pack 12 my sophomore year. And obviously now it's the, the pack 12, but I wanted to play what I determined to be like big boy division one sports. So being six, five and left-handed, that's an advantage as a pitcher, not necessarily an advantage as a quarterback. It's kind of just a, a wash. And so I was more heavily recruited for baseball, even though my skills might've been somewhat comparable between the two. I, I loved football. It's funny. I still have, uh, you know, dreams from my days in, in sports and it's almost always football. It really is. Like I, I just, I always envisioned myself and I approached my baseball career as a football player. I don't know if this is your experience, Andy, but with baseball, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes there's this culture of less is more, or it's kind of like slacking off, messing around, like taking the extra time is like what the best players do. Whereas football is the exact opposite. It's like first one in, last one out. It's almost militaristic where it's like, okay, the best players are those who grind. And so I was a good baseball player. I wasn't a great baseball player. Like I was a 26-round draft pick, number 774 overall. The Toronto Blue Jays gave me $1,000 and a plane ticket. Like I was a senior sign. I was a nobody. I was just a body. Good baseball player. Not a great baseball player, but I wanted to play in the big leagues. So I applied that football type of mentality where off seasons I was grinding. I was, I was lifting in season to try to get that 87 mile an hour fastball up to, you know, 91, 92, like whatever I could do. Um, I, I learned a lot through that, but you asked about the connection with football and, you know, was I recruited? I wanted to play that big boy uh, division one sport and baseball was just the ticket for that. I could have gone to like a, you know, San Diego state, maybe Nevada, things like that. But when SC came calling, that was an easy yes for me. Yeah. I, yeah. And it, you know, it's interesting. I love that analogy you gave that the football tie into baseball, because I think you're exactly right. One thing that has always irritated me is right. Pitchers have this reputation of being lazy. Right. And, I remember and, my first, and some are and some are yes like, some it's not entirely it's not entirely wrong. <laughs> so, well, and look at look at the guys that we watched pitch in the late eighties, early nineties. I even go like I remember the guys I grew up with watching. Uh, I I just saw a picture of Gaylord Perry because he recently passed away, but like mm. when he pitched, he had a beer gut. Like he did not look like an athlete whatsoever. So I right. get the reputation. And then, truth be told, Bob, like my first two years at UW Milwaukee. I, I fell into the trap of not being totally committed. And it wasn't until I made a recommitment to baseball, my final two years at, at, at UWM, kind of bringing that mentality you just mentioned to all the work off the field when no one's watching. That's when everything changed for me. And, and I laugh when you were saying I was drafted in the 26th round. I signed for a thousand dollars in a plane ticket. You got being beat man by about 24 rounds, <laughs> 500 bucks and a plane ticket. So, um, okay, okay. those bring back memories question I have for you though. Cause I think we get a lot of people, a lot of parents who listen to this and I think they share the content with their, their kids. When you were a kid growing up playing baseball in California, being a kid from Wisconsin, where like the few stand out cause baseball, you can't play all year long. 
in California, where it's so competitive, did that help mold you as a baseball player early on? Because that competition for little league at the little league level in California is just, let's face it so much better than it is in so many other places, in the country. Yes. And no, yes. It molded me in that anytime you can be around better competition, it's going to ask you to raise your level of play, of course. But then I'd also say no, because sometimes people are like, Oh, well, if you played collegiately, if you play professionally, you must have like been totally bought in and played baseball year round, right? No, that's not true at all. Like in, in high school, I, was, I probably played football eight months a year. I played baseball four. So I'm actually, I was skipping the football because you have seven on seven and stuff like that during the spring because I was, I was pitching. Like you can't be on the football field and the baseball field at the same time. Those, you know, baseball for the spring essentially. But then it was, once June rolled around, it was football season. I'm watching film, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I don't know how things stand currently. I do know that the trend, at least when I was in high school and to answer your question, when I was growing up was to start to specialize, like, Hey, you really need to get your kid in baseball and only baseball and have you know baseball coaches and be doing that year round and be on eight different travel teams and all that stuff. That wasn't the case. For me, like up through eighth grade, I played basically every sport that was in season, mostly baseball, basketball, football. If we did like soccer or something in, in PE or whatever, track and field, I would do that as well. But I was just kind of a kid. Like, hey, what season is it? Oh, it's track and field season. Like, okay, well, I guess I'm not fast, but you know, maybe maybe I can throw something. So yes and no. I think the competition helped me. But then also I was not completely specialized on, on baseball yeah. uh, really until I got to college, which isn't the case for most people, especially in California. It's refreshing to hear that. I graduated high school in 96 and back then you wanted the three sport stars. And yeah. I didn't, I, I, I would go to a baseball camp over Christmas break, but I was playing basketball I didn't pick up my glove until March 1st until about two weeks ahead of, of our first practices. Mm -hmm. I was, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, my nephew now is a senior, he's going to play college baseball, but he's also a very good football player and hockey player. But guess what? He did not go out for those sports the last year or two because he focused on baseball. That is the way it, as much as I don't like it, that is the way it is. Yeah. And so three, really three questions I want to ask you about the sports career. Number one, was there, was there a moment you can remember playing high school baseball where you're like, I do have a legit chance of playing Pac-10, now Pac-12 baseball? Yes. Um, I grew up in Orange County. USC is right in the heart of Los Angeles. It's like 45 minutes away. So I grew up going to some camps there. And I was approached at the end of one of those camps like, hey, we just want you to know like we're, we're, we're seriously considering – you know, making an offer, like you're on our list, basically. So that was number one, just helpful, but eye opening. Okay. I mean, I guess I'm doing something right. And at that point, you know, I'm the, I'm the six foot left-hander, but like you're a freshman, you know, high school or whatever, throwing 68 miles an hour or whatever I was, we're like, Hey, I can kind of, this guy's projectable. So I would say that high school was truly the last time that I felt like the best player on the field. Wow. Where that's interesting. Every, every time I went out, I expected to win as yep. a symptom of talent. 
and I still worked hard, but I was like, you know, I'd look at the team that I'm facing. Like I am, I am truly better than these guys. If I play well, we'll probably win. Whereas when I got to college, like I was never all conference. I had a, you know, pretty vanilla college career. And then professionally, like I was far outmatched. So high school was the last time that talent was enough to, to help me, you know, get, go to, get over the finish line, so to say. And I think what that did is it caused me as somebody who wants to win, like nobody wants to lose. Yeah. It forced action. It forced my off seasons. It forced me to not drink in college. Like when, you know, I turned 21 and drank sparingly, but I didn't drink alcohol for the same reason I didn't drink soda. I wanted to throw baseballs faster. Like I just really cared about playing. And as somebody who had good talent, but not world-class talent, how do you become a world-class performer with, with those tools? The only thing that you can do is the, the things that you can control, your preparation, your training, the stuff that you can be intentional on. So, and of course, everybody has a ceiling, but the way that you meet that ceiling is not by, you know, partying and drinking, you know, drinking all the sodas and stuff like that. I just knew I had to take those extra steps. A hundred percent. You know, you just made me think of something. I don't know if I've ever verbally shared this, but I thought I've thought about a lot for the last 30 years. I can remember certain games in high school where I was pitching, I was starting against a certain team in our conference. And it wasn't a matter of, do I, are we going to win tonight? It's my goal is a shutout. Cause I already knew I was going to beat them. Now the goal is I want to shut out. And that mentality, that sounds, they may sound egotistical, but it's just a, it's just a, a sign of confidence, right? You knew you right. were talented and better than a lot of the people on the other team. And it, it's interesting, Bob, I haven't felt that until very recently running this business. It, it's, it's, it's because when I got to pro ball, my challenge was, I, I didn't feel like I belonged. Yeah. And so I want to go back to you because you you're at USC which, by the way, you got to play with your brother, Brent, who was also a pitcher, who also got drafted, which is really Yeah, cool. for two I, years. It was awesome. By the way, I want your family genes. You're 6'5", he's 6'4", so I, I need to find out how that happened because that that that's the piece I was – I my pitching coach in college said, Andy, if you were 6'4", you'd be a top five-round pick. But well, you're 5'9". <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> so, totally, totally. But when you were at USC, was there now an equal moment when you realized you have – a shot to actually play pro ball? Uh, it was something that I always wanted. Uh, I ended the second half of my junior season. Uh, I was a, I was a starter. I finished with like a, I think I had like a two, eight ERA. So like I, I performed pretty well. I threw 70, yeah. 80 innings or something like that. But the last maybe two months of the year, I was somewhat injured. Like, started with an elbow. I had some issues with my fingers, stuff like that. Like I was literally starting in division one baseball, throwing 78 miles an hour, but I was still somehow getting people out. It was like slow, slower and slowest like that. And people just couldn't hit it. So I didn't get drafted, which, you know, I, I needed to heal up. Like I couldn't have gone and played pro ball, but then senior year, I'm like, okay, well I want to get drafted. Didn't perform as well like was stressing about it, was trying to light up the radar gun, things like that. All of the the pressure that I didn't feel as a junior, I then felt as a, as a senior. So, and honestly, it, it was to the point where um, I wasn't sure if I was going to get drafted. 
where on on draft day, like I said, it was a 26 round draft pick. So I guess I was on the second day of the draft. Now that I recall, I was literally I was working out at my house. I was doing push ups on the floor and I, it was probably just like a stress workout more than anything. It wasn't like I'm, you know, Rocky Balboa trying to get in shape to fight Drago. I was probably like, oh, man, my career's over. And uh, I remember seeing my phone light up and says, Buzz Smith, Toronto Blue Jays. And I'm like, who the heck is Bud Smith? Like, I, I had literally, Andy, never met Bud. And he's the area, area scout for the Toronto Blue Jays. Fortunately, I had taken his business card and punched in his contact information on my phone. Like, you know, you send those letters and I'm sure, you know, Bud, God bless you. I'm sure, you know, you send that to all eight eligible seniors on the team, right? So like, I punch it in on my phone, Bud Smith, Toronto Blue Jays. So I pick up the phone and he says, Hey Bob, like we're about to go to a break here at the 25th round. We want to sign you in the 26th round. Will you sign for a thousand dollars? Like, duh, of course I will. Are you kidding me? Like, yes, Bud Smith, whoever you are. So I guess that was the moment. Like I believe I could get drafted when I got drafted. That's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 I remember that I didn't get drafted. So all three days go by and my name did get picked. And I actually had started an internship at a company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I remember it was day one, literally the first day of the internship, I was doing like data entry for a financial investment company. Horrible. I remember I came home and I was like, I can't yeah. do this all summer. Like this is going to be awful. And I came home and there was a voice message on my phone back when we had, you know, the, the house phones. And it was my pitching coach saying, Hey, call me right away. And they and the brewers wanted to sign me as a free agent. And, and by that was on a Monday and by Friday, I was in Helena, Montana. So it's probably an equal story for you. You get drafted, you get signed. And before you know it, you're shipped off. Where, did you go to Dunedin in California, Dunedin, Florida. Uh, in, in Florida? Yeah. Okay. Yep. yep. That's where spring training is for the days. And that's where the GCL Gulf coast league, uh, that's where they send all rookies to rookie ball without, without making you go into all the details of your pro career. Um, you know, you ended up, you, you did not end up making it all the way to the top like myself, you know, when you look at your pro career, how would you describe it from an aspect of, you know, like, like you talked about bringing the football mentality to baseball, which is what really helped you in high school and college. What was, what was pro ball like for you? It was, it was awesome. It was also a great challenge. There was a lot of things that were really difficult about it. There were a lot of things that were so rewarding on the rewarding side, like number one, just to be able to say, you know, hey, Bud Smith, of the Toronto Blue Jays called me and they wanted to pay me to play a game. That's nuts. Like not many people can say that. That is truly a, a childhood dream. And so that's something that I'm, I'm so, so grateful for. And I, w I wasn't this amazing prospect where it's like, oh, no brainer, right? I felt like they truly took a chance on me where there's probably another left-handed pitcher that they could have signed. They went with me. And also I was able to live in a bunch of really cool places. Like I lived in Dunedin, Florida. I lived in West Palm beach, Florida. Cause I went to a couple of spring training with the Cardinals. That's where their spring training is. I lived in Vancouver, British Columbia. That was awesome. Like I spent uh, my second year with the Vancouver Canadians. It's the, the short season affiliate of the Toronto blue Jays. Like when else am I going to live in Canada for a summer in Vancouver's beautiful like just amazing i lived in state college pa i lived in peoria illinois i lived in normal illinois 
And half of my teammates, as I'm sure was the case for you, English wasn't their first language. Mm-hmm. That was super cool for me, where you have teammates from the Dominican or Venezuela, Mexico, Colombia, and in the lower levels of the minor leagues, I don't know if it's the case today, but at least when I was playing, they would literally have English class. You have English class like three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, whatever it was. So they're, they're actively learning English as you know, they're being they're here in the States, but we still have a game to play. So if my catcher can't speak good English, if my shortstop can't speak good English, how do you bridge the gap? How do you meet a teammate where he is? Sp- uh, Spanglish, like you just, you do the best you can. And like, it, it worked both ways, but I had some, I had some amazing friendships with guys from different countries. You know, we're joking around about, you know, like who's, who's dating what girl and stuff like that. And, you know, American girlfriends are sending cookies to Dominican teammates and stuff like that. Like, it was just awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. And like, you know, you've been in the clubhouses, like they play totally different music than we do. You have the country white boys and you have the Latinos playing their, you know, playing their music and it's just a different volume and it's a different vibe, but like being able to appreciate that about them, it's like, bro, you're so different than I am. And I appreciate what you bring to the room. Like yeah, there's absolutely a, right. there's a bunch of six, five left-handed white dudes named Bob from Orange County. Like that's a, that's a boring clubhouse. You yeah. know what I mean? So yeah, I'd say pro ball was really rewarding in that regard. It was also really challenging. I, my first job when I moved to Nashville, I was working in finance as a financial advisor. And uh, at, at one point I was getting up at 4 a.m. to read my Bible, hit the gym, get in breakfast, get suited up, be at the office at seven. And you know I was going to bed at like 10 or something. So my days were super, uh, you know, super compressed. But I remember thinking, this is like the easiest job in the world. Like I sleep in the same bed every day, my bed, and I wear a suit to work. Whereas with baseball, you have host families, you have motels, you have 13 hour bus rides, and there is no promise that you'll get what you want. No promise you'll get what you want and no promise you have a job tomorrow. 100%. So that's where the challenge came in, where I was working so hard in season, yeah. off season, the whole deal for something that isn't guaranteed. And it's not that, you know, working in finance or working with brand builders groups, like, oh, well, you're going to be, you're going to be a millionaire if you X, Y, Z. It's like nothing's guaranteed. Tomorrow isn't guaranteed. But it was such a steep hill to climb that it's, that's where the challenge came in for sure. Yeah. Well, let's wrap up the, the sports segment because I want to dive into your book too. What advice would you give if there's like a parent listening who may share this, you know, one for themselves in business, you know, this is good advice for business, but maybe share this content with a a young athlete and their family. Looking back on your sports career, you know, you talked about, I I, I call it putting in all the work when no one's watching you. I loved how you talked about how you applied it even to your finance career. You got up at four 30 in the morning, you read your Bible, you got your exercise in like your routine is what has made you successful. What advice would you give somebody listening in about that, whether it's sports or business? What would you recommend when it comes to doing the work off the field when no one's watching? And what impact is that, has that had on your life? I would say that it, it always works out for you eventually. 
Now it might not be where my off seasons training in New Orleans, Louisiana for four months, you know, four months a year doing two a day workouts, not seeing my family. And I don't get to the big leagues like, oh, well, sorry, Bob, that didn't work out. No, well, it, it will eventually. Like the things that I learned in that, the discipline that was forged, all of that, like it, it, I, I would just say zoom out, have a long-term perspective. Um, and also a, a book that really impacted my life was The Compound Effect Dar by Darren Hardy. And a bunch of people have written on similar concepts where if you haven't read the book, the whole idea of the compound effect is a bunch of little decisions will make a huge impact if you just give it enough time. It's like compounding interest, right? You don't make a million dollars in one day. You might make a million dollars in 40 years compounding, compounding, compounding. And so one of the things that I think baseball specifically does well, because we have a game every single day, you just have to show up. Whether you won, lost, or, you know, like they say in Bull Durham, if it rained, like you have to show up. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, sometimes it rains. You have a game the next day. Mm -hmm. But what I would say to the parent, young athlete, business owner, whoever it is, just, just show up and know that the work that you put in that day probably won't change your life, but it will accumulate. And over time, that day turns to a week, to a month, to a year to a decade, to a, to a lifestyle. Like this is who I am. And I, I'm not getting up at 4 a.m. these days, but like just understanding, uh, yeah, th that's why you do the routine because you're not set on, oh man, this has to work today or else it's not worth doing. No, totally. Like, that's, not, that's not life. Like you plant in the spring, you reap in the fall. You need to be need to be willing to see that delay in the gratification. That's how life operates. So the people that get ahead understand it's okay if I'm in a, if I'm in a sowing season, I am planting seeds. That's it. I am, I, I'm training myself. I'll reap eventually. It, like it always comes around. It's the people that don't reap because they're like, well, I'm going to plant the spring. Uh, or sorry, it's those that don't sow. I'm going to sow in the spring and reap in the spring. It's like, well, don't we all, but that's not, that's not life. That's not science. So yeah, that's what I would say. Just zoom out. Like it, it'll that. come back. Just, just keep at it. I even see people who want to harvest without planting seeds. <laughs> and I, yeah. I, I think, I think what you said as uh, being two former pitchers, I think the whole short-term memory is even more important. When you gave up a home run, guess what? there's another batter in the batter's box. You got to refocus. Right. And I knew that for me was a big deal when I like, especially building this company I have today, complete game consulting, you're going to have bad days, but you know what? You get to go to bed and you get to show up tomorrow and tomorrow's a new day. As a pitcher, you might give up five runs today. Guess what? Tomorrow's a new day, new game. And so I love that, man. Thank you for sharing that. Now we could spend the rest of the time talking about your career now as sales director, brand builders group. And by the way, if you're an entrepreneur listening in, I'm going to make a plug for BBG here. We are BBG members and you want to grow your business. You want to grow your brand recognition for your business. I don't know if there's a better organization in this country to help you do that. So if you want to know more, hit me up brand builders group. We are members, we are fans. So uh, definitely hit me up for more information. But instead of talking about your role at BBG, I want to talk about a book you've got coming out. Uh, the book is titled our heart's desire 
how our stories reveal the thing we want most. And I know God has been a big part of your life. Let's just start with the basic question. Why did you write the book? I have been spending about two and a half years on this project. And you had mentioned brand builders a couple of times. The reason why I ended up signing with brand builders as a client, because I, I was a client well before I was an employee, was for this project, for the book. So I had written the book over the course of the pandemic. And I had, I had dipped my toes into writing a little bit. I was always a reader. Like, you know, there's a ton of time in the clubhouse, the buses of the minor leagues. So instead of scrolling Instagram, which I did sometimes, like I, I read a lot. That's how that habit came to be. And so I started writing more and more. And this book, it, it truly came instantly where I had stopped and started on maybe two or three different projects. You know, you write 50 pages, it's no good. You throw it away, start over. With this one, and uh, I, I'm a Christian. This is a Christian nonfiction book. Like it is very much a part of my life, very much a part of my public reputation. I want to be known as, oh, it's that Christian dude. Um, I have a mentor here in Nashville that recommended that I read the Bible in a year when I first moved to town. And so I did that with him and I enjoyed it so much that I did it the next four years. So we just wrapped up the holiday season. I've read the Bible cover to cover the last five years. And so with this book, Our Heart's Desire, it was like a combination of my reading of scripture, like constantly reminding myself of this story that God says he has written. And then also the author, the aspiring author that's learning about stories and world building and characters and, you know, villains and all these things. And so I was reading a nonfiction or sorry, I was reading a, uh, a science fiction novel. And this is actually, it's not, I'm not going to spoil anything, but this is the first chapter of my book where I'm saying, Hey, here's how the book came about. I'm reading a science fiction novel. And it was like those two worlds completely blended where the Bible that I've been constantly pouring over for, I mean, literally years. And then this story, this like this archetype of a love story where you have the hero, the villain, the love interest to be saved. You start in paradise. That paradise is quickly undone. And then the entire story, you're trying to restore that paradise. I then saw those as one and the same. Cause if you zoom out on the Bible and again, it's, I mean, I would never say that I'm an expert in scripture, not a pastor, not a, not a theologian, but I am at least on a macro level, constantly reminding myself of this story and what the Bible says, if what the Bible says is true is exactly that love story archetype. There's a hero, a villain, a love interest to be saved. We began in paradise. That paradise was quickly undone. God is trying to restore that paradise and Again, if what the Bible says is true, that is the end that it lays out. So you asked how the book came about. It, it was literally in an instant. I was like, well, maybe the reason why we keep telling that narrative, whether it's the Hunger Games, Braveheart, The Matrix, like insert story you love here. Maybe we keep telling that same story because we're actually living it. And our creator, the creator of the universe, the author, capital A, author of this story, wants us to recognize it. So you could have somebody in Hollywood who 
let's say they create yet another rendition of that story, hero, villain, love interest, paradise. And they're like, I've come up with this amazing story. And you look at it, it's like, but it not it kind of Star Wars, but like in a here on earth, or isn't it kind of like dances with wolves, but with people in Pandora in Avatar? Like it's, it's the same story, right? Why is that? Why do we keep telling the same story? Is it just because it sells? I don't believe that. I believe it's because the story, it's the story that we were born into and God has made us to recognize it. We can't avoid that story. It's literally everywhere. Well, and in the book, I know you break up the, the book into three separate acts. And yeah, let's talk about that because storytelling is a big thing we do at our company, Complete Game uh, Consulting. You know, what are the three acts of storytelling? You know, referencing the Bible is probably the best story ever written. But what are the three acts of storytelling and why are they so important? Yeah. So when it comes to the, the three acts of storytelling, and there's going to be some outliers. Like if you're watching a horror film or something, you're not going to say, oh, act one, act two, act three. Like there, there are some that don't fit within the mold, but oftentimes you will see that three act structure. So that first act is you're setting up the externals. It's like the external problem where you start, it's the white picket fence type of world. And then you're introduced to some sort of villain, something bad happens. And then it's like, okay, we have a story on our hands. Like that, that's the first act. It's the external problem. Then the second act, which is usually the middle of the novel, the middle of the movie, things go internal where whoever that villain is, the, the bully, the opposing army that you're fighting in the war, whatever, they kind of disappear. And then you're just focused on the good guys. It's like, you know, it's Frodo and Sam, right? They're kind of doing their thing. It's just like a friendship. And then you have the back and forth dynamic sometimes of the hero and the love interest. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. So it, in the second act of the story, it's that internal struggle. So act one, external. Act two, internal, where the good guys kind of just bicker and figure things out between themselves. And then the third act is the new world. It's the, the new world order where... If it is some type of war movie, Braveheart, whatever, you have that final momentous battle. You usually have like the big speech or whatever it might be. Or, you know, if it's a sports movie, it's a championship game. And then it's it's that new world where the paradise that you once saw, the opening image of the film, opening chapter of the novel is then restored. And again, it might sound simplistic and there's a ton of nuance within scripture but again, if you just zoom out like that, that is the structure that you know, our, our history, that's how it's laid out. Where, you know, the, the first first couple chapters of the Bible, you have, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You have the Garden of Eden. You have the fall of man. You have the, you know, Noah's Ark and the flood. Like we're creating all of this external you know, circumstances, turmoil, where it's basically you have a very good God who wants to love humanity, but humanity continues to stiff arm them. Like, God, I know you love me. I say, no, I want to go my own way. Like that was the initial story. And then the entire like internal struggle where God just continues to profess his love and make himself available to mankind. 
And it's kind of that dance where sometimes people do respond, whether it's on like a, a national level with like people of Israel or even on a like human level with you and me. And you like, we go through this ourselves. Like God is constantly, it says this in the book of Romans, no, nobody has an excuse. We are without excuse. God has made himself apparent to everyone, even if it's just through his creation. Mm. So you could look at a mountain range. You could look at the, the sun setting or rising. That is God like professing his love or professing his, his presence, making himself known to you. We that we're living in that, you know, on an individual level, that internal struggle, like, what do I say to this if I'm being pursued by him? And then of course the new world is um, once you come to grips with that, how does that change things? And as we kind of put a bow on how this looks uh, in the, in the scriptures, every sort of cultural initiative I truly believe is, is, is well-meaning. And there's some that some things that are truly evil, which I mean, the, the examples are obvious, but for the most part, when it comes to some sort of cultural initiative, you know, equality, equity, whatever it is, that's a very good goal. All we're trying to do is restore paradise. That's it. We just want to restore paradise. The thing is we are not the author of the story. So we don't have a say in how that paradise is restored. So we're kind of on this hamster wheel of let's fix it, let's fix it, let's, fi let's fix it. But we don't have the pen in our hands. God has said, guys, I totally get it. I have the same goal. I want to restore paradise as well. Here's the way it will happen. I think that's where we where we kind of miss it. But yeah, I love that. Go back point. to your question yeah. on, on the three acts. That's the new world that God is trying to bring us. God wants us to have paradise. That's the whole point. Such a relevant time to be talking about this too. And, and you know, the whole comment of we try to fix it. And we're, let's be honest, we're trying to fix it by force. And yeah. nothing good ever comes out of fixing things by force. Um, I'm really curious, like, who, who did you write the book for? Like, who, who is the ideal reader of this book? Yeah, I... I wrote the book for someone who wants to know God more, but doesn't know where to start. Mm, I love that. Okay. I, I was fortunate enough to grow up in the church. I went to a Christian middle school, Christian high school. Now, I probably wasn't a Christian at that point in time, which sounds strange because I was getting A's on the tests. I, I could memorize scripture. But if Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay. That's, that's a cause and effect statement. Like if I love him, then I will follow him. That will be the general direction of my life. I'll still slip up. Like nobody's perfect. Nobody bats a thousand, but I will want to bat a thousand. Like it'll be important to me to follow him as my master, as my Lord. So in that regard, I don't think I was a Christian actually until after pro ball, hmm. until I saw all of these dreams fail. And so I finally, you know, fell at his feet and said, Lord, you know, I wanted to be a big leaguer. I had all these dreams. They are all gone. I have nothing. I'm done being the quarterback of my life. I'm not the captain of this ship. You are. So I wrote it for the person who maybe wants to know God, but doesn't know where to start. Like I would never claim that this book is like a top shelf 
systematic theology super deep. It, it's not that. Like we're talking about the Matrix. We're talking about Saving Private Ryan. I know you're a baseball guy. We're talking about the Sandlot. Like all these movies that we grew up watching and explaining, okay, first of all, we have this motif in stories all the time. And here's why. Here's why you love the Sandlot. Here's why you love Saving Private Ryan. Here's why when Katniss volunteers as tribute, we we light up because that was Jesus. Like we were made to be lit up by that. So it's for the, the person who wants to know God and uh, hopefully loves movies and novels and stuff like that because there's plenty of that in there. But I just want people like going back to the sub subtitle, how our stories reveal the thing we want most. I truly believe that everyone listening to this is all seeking the same thing. The thing you want most is to be restored to your maker. We all, we all want that Eden like relationship where every tear is wiped away from our eyes. There's no sin. And most importantly, we are restored to our creator our father. So, and I think that's why we keep telling that story. That's our ultimate desire. Yeah. And I, I, I'm looking at your media kit right now and we got your media kit. You had all the movies, uh, a page dedicated to all the movies that are referenced and it's pretty cool. All the, all the movies that you do reference, like you said, from Lord of the Rings to Rudy to Indiana Jones, Rocky, you name it, because it's, it's that story we love inside each and every one of those, uh, those movies. So when, a couple things, when does, the book come out and how can somebody get their hands on it? Yeah. So it comes out Tuesday, January 24th. So it'll be in a, in a couple weeks. Best place to go is just bobwheatley.com. Bobwheatley.com. You'll be able to buy the book there. We're selling it on Amazon. You also, uh, depending on what time you listen to this podcast, I'm actually giving away the audiobook completely free. Mm-hmm. So with a pre-order, you just go back to bobwheatley.com. It's right there on the homepage. Super easy. First name, your email, your Amazon receipt number. You'll have five hours of audiobook. They're ready to go. Basically, if somebody's excited about the book and they hear like, oh man, Rudy, Indiana Jones, like I'm in, I don't want them to, to have to wait a couple weeks for the book to show up. That's so really cool. yeah, sell it on Amazon, but bobwheatley.com will have everything you need, including that free audiobook. Awesome. And we're going to put everything in the show notes as well. So people can, can grab the link and get right to it. Um, Bob, I want to thank you. Uh, this has been a pleasure. It's been great getting to know you. Like I said, I still, I still envy you from a distance being six, five Southpaw. Um, but you got a really cool story. And I think the story of having success on the field and off, that's what this podcast is all about. And you definitely, um, our role model for what it means to have success on and off the field. So I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's always nice connecting with a, a, a fellow uh, gunslinger, pitcher, bullpen uh, aficionado like you. So thank you for having me. No, you bet, man. And for everybody else listening in, I hope you got a lot out of today's episode. Uh, Bob shared a lot of great nuggets about how to succeed, how to succeed in sports but at the same time, how to succeed in life. And I can't wait to see it for his book to come out again. It's our heart's desire, how our stories reveal the thing we want most. And so I hope you get your hands on a copy of it. I think it's going to be a great book. I'm a fan of storytelling to begin with, but uh, why not do it by aligning yourself with 
the man upstairs, God, and, 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 and with the most powerful story we've ever, we've ever heard. So Bob, thank you again for everybody else who's listening in. You know what happens when you are given that clarity, you mix it with confidence, you do amazing things. So go do amazing things today. Have a beautiful weekend.